0: Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast International Break Edition. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage. And we are two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I am Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the owner, operator, and editor of ClubCountryUSA.com. You might call yourself, if you wanted to... The proprietor. proprietor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks to Moon Taxi for the music leading into this. Question for you, Tim. How have you spent your international break? Have you traveled the world? Have you you know, read a library worth of books? Yeah, I,
1: I used my television set to travel to Denver, Colorado on Sunday evening and uh, stayed up very late during my stay in the Mile High City and
0: had a good time there. So we're going to spend some time. Talking USMNT, but we also want to get deep into Nashville SC, even though there are no matches to recap. In fact, because there are no matches to recap or directly preview, we want to get into some of the subjects that you've been asking us about for a while. And we want to go deeper into Nashville SC's rosters. We're going to talk about roster rules, Nashville's budget, and also talk about what's happening elsewhere in Major League Soccer to make sure that you're up to date, as we've had a chance now to get up to date on a lot of storylines Around the league, and of course, it is a huge international break for the U.S. men's national team. And the highlight matches have already happened. But depending on when you're listening to this, you may be awaiting Randall Leal of Nashville SC against the U.S. So we'll get into the uh, the U.S. men's national team, the country part of club and country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We saved up some of the Nashville SC stuff. We knew the international break was on the way. We did not know it was going to be such an exciting international break. Uh, the Nations League final, I think, is going to take up a lot of our, our our oxygen here. But certainly, we have plenty of energy to also dedicate uh, some discussion to the roster rules of major league soccer and how they apply to Nashville SC.
0: So one thing that unifies MLS diehards and newcomers, and we recognize that our audience consists of both of those groups is that we all can be mystified from time to time by the league's roster rules. They are fairly complex. And one thing that we can bring you is a breakdown specifically of, of the implications that those rules have on Nashville SC. And so we're going to get deep into Nashville's roster today. Who are the, the value steals? Where are the big outlays? Where's the money being spent? And how is Nashville set up to leverage its roster for future success? So that's going to be the, the heart of what we're talking about today, as I, I dare say that Tim will be our guest, if you will, <laughs> an, an expert in the ins and outs of MLS roster rules and if you are concerned that it's going to get too deep into the weeds don't worry we're we'll going to we'll have keep some it good... accessible we'll keep it right. accessible and if you want to get in the weeds we'll have just enough weeds like the crabgrass that's growing in my backyards that just tends to spread a little faster than we expect in the early shout first though we're going to recap Concacaf madness in the mile high city then we will talk about our roster deep dive and then get into the mailbag what tactical or personnel tweaks should nashville consider on the pitch and And then we'll go outside in as Nashville SC has its own international contingent in action for various countries in some consequential matches this week and coming up in the next couple of months. How are things going in World Cup qualifying in the run-up to Copa America, which could have an impact on Nashville SC if Copa America happens in Brazil. That's (laughs) another long story. So without further ado, let's get into our early shout. And Tim, US-Mexico 3-2, there will be podcasts, there will be maybe operas, uh, one-act <laughs> plays, two-act plays, dedicated to what was uh, a, a triumph full of comedy, tragedy, irony. It was downright Shakespearean for a competition that I think many folks didn't even realize existed until maybe a couple months ago. Uh, the first win over l Tree in a competitive match since 2013, just the second in the U.S.'s last 10 competitive Contests. I don't know where to start with this. I'm going to toss it over to you and just let you take this wherever you want to take it.
1: Yeah, I couldn't have gotten off to a much worse start. Uh, within two minutes of the, of the game kicking off, Tecetito of Mexico basically rips the ball off of Mark McKenzie's foot. Mark McKenzie, formerly of Philadelphia Union, moved internationally this offseason. Uh, it did not start well because yeah, Tecetito gets the ball and absolutely blasts it past Zach Steffen. And it kind of had a feeling of here we go again. Until the 27th minute, Gio Reyna knots it up. Um, He banged home a rebound, a Weston McKenney header from a corner kick, which is going to be a theme that you'll recognize Mm -hmm. shortly after after we get into the second half here. But the first half was extremely exciting. It was nothing in comparison to what happened (laughs) after that. Zach Steffen gets hurt shortly after halftime. Um, Diego Lainez uh, puts Mexico back on top. Tim Ream had a rough go for the United States, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Linus cuts back onto his left foot, uh, past Tim Ream, blasts one past. Backup keeper Ethan Horvath, who's a guy who I've long been high on, did not get his uh, great introdu- introduction to the CONCACAF Nations League. <laughs> but again, the United States was able to come back in the 82nd minute. Weston McKenney. Again on a set piece this time he didn't need help. He didn't need somebody there to clean up the trash a little bit. He had a a blast right past Mexico keeper memo Ochoa. And then there was a a slight, uh, scuffle at the end of extra uh, of regular time. Sorry. Yeah. Precursor Not to give a little spoiler here, but um, it did go to extra time. Um, A VAR induced penalty from each team. I think both of them were justifiable calls. I think both of them uh, ended up being the correct calls, uh, During the second of them, I believe, uh, Mexico coach Tata Martino sent off for putting his arm around the ref's shoulder as he was at the VAR booth. This was an absolutely ridiculous game. It was egregious. That was the best example. Yeah. And then, um, you know, during uh, a, a celebration from the United States, I believe after Christian Pulisic, Puts home the penalty kick on the the first of those VAR penalties. Gio Reyna pelted in the eye with a uh, glass beer bottle, or I guess it would probably have been plastic if we were in an NFL stadium, but pelted in the eye. Um, ended up having, I believe, to get medical treatment after the mm-hmm. game. Uh, Mile High Stadium announced this afternoon that the fan has been arrested <laughs> for throwing that Good. bottle. It was, it was legitimately serious stuff. Um, after, after that, uh, you get the second penalty that was uh var uh, induced i guess you could say uh a sh- uh, pass from mexico hits a us player in the hand i believe it was mckenzie again if i recall correctly and uh this time it was not to be the penalty was not converted because horvath my boy uh, converts uh, uh prevents the conversion from from mexico and the united states manages to hold off through 11 minutes of <laughs> second half of extra time stoppage again Absolutely ridiculous, absolute scenes all over the place. United States is the inaugural CONCACAF Nations League champ, but there were certainly plenty of twists and turns and <laughs> a lot of drama along the way.
0: So when you see an action thriller that's, uh, that's incredibly full of, of craziness, I think it helps as you're driving home with whoever you saw the movie with to sit back and first say, what did this mean? Like, what is the broad theme here? And then there are so many talking points that, again, we won't go through for the two hours that we could easily discuss. <laughs> just the final, you know. Check out our eight-episode
1: series next summer. Yeah.
0: Seriously. There's going to be a, a Grant Wall podcast series on this one, I think, or somebody's <laughs> going to put something together. But I'll ask you then first off. This, this, if all goes well, will not be the most important match that the U.S. plays against Mexico, perhaps even this year. In fact, that's almost a guarantee with World yeah. Cup co- qualifying showdowns coming up that said what can we take from this besides a trophy which is a nice thing for this team to to glean do you think there there's lasting significance here or was it just a great night full of weird fluky things
1: you mentioned it at the top I don't think it matters if it's fluky but when the United States is kind of in a period of continued struggle against its regional rival you'll take the trophy certainly you'll take a competitive win over your arch rival and you will hopefully see it as a sign that The corner is being turned. The people who scored for the United States, all of them under the age of 24. This is a team that started... uh, John Brooks was the guy with the most international caps. I believe he's only 27, maybe 28. This is a really young United States team. And that's not to say it's an old Mexico team, but finally the United States, after cycling through a generation and then having growing pains as they tried to find their feet under this generation, even if it doesn't turn out to be the case that this is finally... The United States that we all wanted to see, um, you know, may- maybe October 19th, 2017, for example, uh, this is still the opportunity to say there's a there's a sign of hope, even if it doesn't end up coming to fruition. You, you f- it made you feel again, which is something that has been we've been numb <laughs> for too long as Amer- as American soccer fans. And I feel like we finally f- have a-, a positive feeling once more.
0: It it was weird for me because I I try not to be too terribly emotionally attached. I think my journalism training kicks in. in I am absolutely right? the
1: same way about every team on the planet except for this
0: one. <laughs> it's funny, right? And which is funny because that's what drew you to cover soccer in the first place mm-hmm. was was this one. And I guess maybe mm-hmm. that it makes sense, right? Because that the audience you can understand the audience, right? Because you're feeling some of those same things. For me. Yeah. Like, there was a, a visceral, like, chill and thrill that kind of coursed through my body when I saw them lift that trophy. A trophy that, again, is the least significant trophy this this group um, could, could really possibly lift of any of the ones they're playing for. And yet, just them doing it and, and surviving moments like those, I think, was key, especially when you're in a, in a tournament that's going to feature some experimentation, right? Tyler mm-hmm. Adams was not really fit to go the full time. Yunus Musa didn't, didn't get the time we thought he was going to get. There was a chance for some younger guys to come in and try to prove themselves. What did you think of some of the tactical and personnel experimentation that we saw, not just against Mexico, but also in the semifinal?
1: Yeah, I mentioned it as I was kind of running through some of the events there. Some of the personnel experimentation, which uh, well, I'll just say it, namely Tim Ream, did not really work out for national team coach Greg Berhalter. Uh, I think we've seen enough of Ream to know that the performance that he put in on Sunday evening was was pretty much within his baseline. It's not going to get a whole lot better with him. And that's not to say that it was necessarily the wrong choice to call him for that game, to have him in that camp or anything. But I also think even Greg Berhalter would say the right choice is to try to find players who can be upgrades at that position. Um, I think, honestly, I have been, as listeners know, kind of lukewarm that Walker Zimmerman absolutely needs a place in the U.S. men's national team. However, after seeing how Reem performed, uh, you get a right-footed player in in Zimmerman to compliment John Brooks, who's a left-footed player and very good with the ball. He does a lot of things that Walker Zimmerman compliments. I think Zimmerman could have been an upgrade over a guy like Tim Reem, and that's Mm -hmm. partially because Reem is 33 years old and Zimmerman's only 28. But there's a a factor in there that you see that you want some of that personnel experimentation to say, okay, we've experimented a little bit. Let's go with a guy who we think can be an upgrade at, in a more certain way. I think that's a big part of it. And then you mentioned Eunice Musa in there. I think basically everybody was disappointed that he didn't see the pitch in either the semifinal or the final. I'm among them. I'm not somebody who said he absolutely needs to see the field. He needs to be cap tied. He needs to uh, you know, get in there because he is the best player available. I think there's a chance that he ends up being the best player available, but I understand in a two game series essentially where you are trying to win a trophy especially when you do ultimately (laughs) accomplish that. I'm not going to be too worried about not playing an 18-year-old kid whose best soccer is still ahead of him.
0: The exclusion of of Walker was was interesting to me as well. I thought maybe he would at least be in the camp for this. The requirements of, of rotation and depth and the quality he has shown domestically to me dictate inclusion. But it was funny when I heard people saying, yeah, we just need somebody else on the ball, a good center back on the ball to be reliable. Got an idea for you. He's yeah. <laughs> no, played it's, for this team. Like,
1: <laughs> I, again, like I said, I've been, I've been like lukewarm on, on Zimmerman. Obviously, he's outstanding for Nashville SC, but as a national team center back, I've been lukewarm. But a, the perfect compliment to John Brooks, who mm-hmm. has great talent with his feet, Has pretty good defensive instincts but just isn't the caliber of athlete that you need back there unless you have somebody who's a really good athlete maybe a little bit more of a risk taker maybe a little bit of a guy who wants to get forward that's exactly what you get in walker zimmerman it's weird to not see him through the lens of of knowing what brooks provided and and what the players who were brought in to complement brooks did not provide i guess
0: yeah it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds gold cup coming up in uh, just over a month, and so mm-hmm. we get to see this group continue to experiment and learn. And a uh, boy, I, I, I would think your money and mine as well is on us and Mexico finding a way to grapple their way to that final of the Gold Cup against an improved Concacaf. It's not automatic, which you saw how close the Honduras match was in the semifinal. But uh, eager for a rematch, and, uh, and
1: and may the Americans lift yet another trophy.
0: May they indeed, and may only paper cups be sold at the venue. <laughs> So uh, let's let's move on to Nashville SC now and and talk roster. And this is kind of replacing our embrace consensus segment today because I think there's some debates to be had within this discussion as well. Would love to take a little bit of time, Tim, to to break down Nashville SC's roster, not in terms necessarily even of contributions on the pitch, but in terms of of you know salary, relative value. Opportunities to to bring in some other acquisitions uh, and, and just answer a lot of things. Some of these have been found in mailbag questions, but I think more generally, you and I have said, look, we've been previewing matches or talking to key club personnel every episode. Let's sit back and let's talk maybe mm-hmm. big bigger picture about about this team. So. With that in mind, a couple of just parameters for those who are maybe a little newer to Major League Soccer or who need some some refreshers like we all do. So each team, in addition, above and beyond the salary cap, is allowed three designated players so they can pay whatever they want above and beyond salary cap, and it doesn't count against them beyond the maximum budget charge of $612,000, plus one young money player, an under two, twenty-two player who can, again, bear unlimited acquisition costs. His salary is, is, is capped at, at that 612 k level. Uh, Nashville has Hani Mukhtar, Yonar Cadiz, Rendal, Leal, Rodrigo Pinero, filling out those four spots. I thought, Tim, we'd start maybe by breaking down Nashville's most expensive players, courtesy of data recently released by the Major League Soccer Players Association, and then just going from there into a conversation about who's bringing in that value, why mm-hmm. certain players are listed as DPs or not, and... And how that works. So, I guess starting off at number one with Hani Mukhtar.
1: Yeah, he's uh, making one point approximately. We're not We're going to round a lot of these. So, yeah. he's making approximately $1.5 million. That makes him the 32nd highest paid player in MLS, which obviously there are only 27 teams. So, some teams have multiple players who are making more money than him. FC Cincinnati has three designated players, each of whom is making more money than Hani Mukhtar. So, When you do look at kind of the context of how much these guys are making, keep in mind that while you generally get what you pay for in the soccer world, it's not a guarantee either. And especially again, when you have a a club like Cincinnati that doesn't necessarily um, allocate their resources properly. Um, But keeping in mind that he's the 32nd highest paid player in MLS. Yes. The expectations are high on honey because he is the club's first designated player. He is the club's highest compensated player but he's not in, in the realm of a guy like Carlos Vela who's making over $6.5 million. He is a guy who, I don't, I don't want to say temper the expectations because I think we all have high expectations for Hani, And I think, you know, Atlanta game accepted. Maybe people are a little bit wary that he isn't necessarily meeting the expectations of a designated player. But
0: where he fits in the grand scheme of designated players should contextualize the performance that is expected of him. Honey Mugtar leads the team in goals with three after the brace against Atlanta. And before that Atlanta match, actually, uh, well, including that Atlanta match, Nashville has yet to win a match when he started. Their two wins both came <laughs> with him either on the bench uh, to start the match or for the whole match. Uh, number two on the salary list, a player we've not heard from this year, nor do we expect to hear from unless you're following over in, following him over in Sweden. And that's David Akam at $1.1 million in annualized salary.
1: Yeah, we've talked about guys who are going to maybe be disappointments in terms of their production or in terms of how much playing time they've gotten compared to the salary. And David Akam is going to lead that list because he was injured for most of last year. Um, He had personal stuff going on. His home was destroyed by the tornado. uh, But prior to the second week of the regular season, obviously global pandemic changes a lot of things, especially when your wife has a child during the course of that global (laughs) pandemic. He had a ton of stuff going on at the same time. He's a guy who made $1.1 million and only got, I believe, it was nine appearances. So um, obviously, that's a disappointment. Obviously, there's also context for that. You mentioned he's over at Hammerby in Sweden. The way the MLS roster rules work is that whatever Hammerby pays him, um, it can come out of that $1.1 million against Nashville SC salary cap, essentially. Nashville, uh, per the loan agreement, can say you pay however much of the salary. And then per MLS rule, that amount does not count against Nashville salary cap. I would guess, I don't know for sure, these things are not publicized. Although MLS is getting much more open about some of the uh, financial terms of deals, whether they're loans, trades within the league, or even acquisitions. They're getting more open about that stuff. We're never going to know the very, very minute specifics of it. I would imagine that Hammerby is paying most of his salary and so that's a guy who, despite the $1.1 million price tag, doesn't feel as bad now as, as maybe a year ago when he was unable to see
0: a ton of the field. And he has uh, played limited action, nine appearances total, one goal. And that came in the quarterfinals of the Swedish Cup, which he ended up winning for Hammerby. I cover this every week at clubcountryusa.com, the guys who are out on loan. I oh, believe he goal?
1: hit his penalty kick in the penalty shootout in the uh, Svenska Cup. Coupen final so he did play a big role in that final too if I recall correctly
0: something by the way that Randall did not get a chance to do in the in the semifinals against Mexico of the Nations League as he had been subbed out uh, mm-hmm. shortly prior to that was hoping to get a chance to see how he performed in PKs without my heart <laughs> in my, in my uh, stomach uh, Walker Zerman and Yonder Cadiz third and fourth on the salary list both uh, clocking in just under a million dollars Walker at 981k a year and Yonder at 966 so typically uh, you know, the center forward striker is going to be the most expensive player on the team, if not one of the most. So, I guess we talk about the value Nashville's getting there. Sure, he's one of the highest paid players on the club, but but it really pales in comparison to what a lot of other teams are spending on, on their front man. You mentioned Vela. Uh, of course, Brenner, a more traditional striker, mm-hmm. going for way more than that.
1: Yeah, and we discussed kind of the comparison between Cotty's salary versus uh, what his production is a couple weeks ago on the pod. So, go back a couple of weeks and, and check out that episode if you want to get into the details a little bit. Um, the fact of the matter is, you're right. He doesn't get paid as much as a guy that you might expect to be your line leading center forward. And we'll we'll see in the not so distant future if Nashville wants to roll with that through the end of this year, if they want to roll for, with that long term, or if they do want to shell out the cash to, to find a guy with a little bit more guaranteed production. I would say the value per dollar with Coddies is pretty good right now. The question is just, do you want to spend more dollars to get more production? Um, You mentioned Zimmerman making a little bit more than him. I don't think anybody would complain. We just discussed what a great MLS player he is and how we think he probably deserved a shot with the USMNT. So uh, obviously, coming off of a MLS Defender of the Year trophy, there's not a whole lot you can complain about um, for for getting that guy's production for less than a million dollars a year.
0: There are so many stories of incredible value. And here in a bit, we'll talk about the steals, but I think one of the... Uh, maybe the biggest uh, disappointment is the number five player on the list. Miguel Nazarit, center back who has not played a minute for the club, was on the bench twice for Nashville SC at 894 894- he is currently on loan back in his native Colombia. Were you surprised when these numbers came out that he was on such a high salary? When he signed, the club announced that it was a TAM signing. And as we'll discuss in
1: a couple players here, there, there are some different reasons that you can use TAM without paying a guy um, $894,000 per year. We're seeing with that $894,000 per year number that it is because of his salary budget not because of acquisition costs or anything like that so yeah i I, that's a huge disappointment he's a guy that the club took a risk in signing he was a pretty young guy um you know in in talking to folks who are familiar with the transaction around the time it occurred, Nashville was pretty concerned with making sure he got into a situation that was from a personal perspective, like safe for him. Mm. Um, Obviously we're seeing in the time since in the past year and a half, Columbia has had a ton of, of geopolitical strife. And that's something that um, is obviously difficult for a guy who did not grow up with great means um, having loaned him back to independiente Santa Fe and his, his home country. They finished, I believe fourth in the premier league table, but they were very poor in the Copa Libertadores, which would be the, the, the analog to the CONCACAF uh, champions league. So it's, or the UEFA champions league, the inferior champions league, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's the top club competition in, in the continent. And they were they were awful in it honestly they went I, th- I believe 0 for six in their in their group stage games obviously you are not advancing from a group if you if you lose all, all of your games so um they have not been very good and he played only twice i believe and in the second game he was singularly responsible for the game losing goal and did not make the bench more than a couple times after that so i it does seem like a performance-based thing and santa Fe releases their injury report each week he was never on it I think this was a guy who coach's decision did not see the pitch. The question from a Nashville perspective is how much of that salary in in the same way that I was discussing with David. How much of that salary does Santa Fe take on? I don't think a whole lot. The monetary heft of these teams in Colombia is not particularly big in comparison to, to the, uh, the American clubs to the Mexican clubs, whomever it may be. So certainly a small chunk of that 894,000 is coming off of Nashville's budget charge, but he's still eating a reasonable amount of salary cap without obviously ever seeing the pitch for Nashville SC. And I I would doubt
0: if he ever does see the pitch for Nashville SC um, going forward either. Speaking of South America, Rodrigo Pinheiro comes up from Uruguay in the off season. He is in the young money category as he, he's allowed to be that fourth designated player if you will uh, he actually makes below that maximum budget charge of six hundred twelve thousand dollars numbers released say he makes around 350k but he was acquired tim for somewhere between a million and a half and two million dollars so it's that acquisition cost that, mm-hmm. that allows him to rise to the level of dp obviously he has only gotten a few minutes for nashville but the sort of player
1: profile-wise that this rule was designed to get—guys right. who you don't have to pay a ton—but South American clubs, especially those in talent-rich countries like Uruguay, um, maybe a, a place like Paraguay. Obviously, we've seen very, very, very talented players come out of there, like Miguel Almirón. But um, maybe Argentina, maybe some of the lesser clubs in Argentina. Obviously, the, the massive clubs in Argentina are are selling guys directly overseas, but some of the middle-tier clubs in Argentina—they need the transfer fee they know that the player they're selling is not going to be a guy who's going to command a huge salary, but they can get a transfer fee because it's essentially a speculation. Mm -hmm. That's what this under 22 initiative is for. So even though we haven't seen Pinero yet, he's not making a ton of money. Um, When we talked to Mike Jacobs, I believe in our second episode way back in the day, he he kind of mentioned that some of this stuff was, um, was about kind of finding the right lottery tickets and things like that. And I think the acquisition cost is a lottery ticket. The, the salary budget means that your your day-to-day costs are, are lower, but the uh, acquisition cost is the part that essentially does not count against anything other than um, John Ingram's pocketbook at the end of the day, and so. When you do have these guys who are potential long-term contributors who aren't quite ready to play yet, that's exactly the sort of guy that this is. That's exactly the sort of guy that the rule is designed to help you get.
0: Speaking of acquisition costs, rising a player up to that level of DP, there's a name we hadn't mentioned yet, and it's Randall Ayal. He ranks eighth on the team in annualized salary, $477,000. So again, that's below the six twelve threshold that would typically make you a DP. But again, here, Tim, it was the price that Nashville paid to bring him in from Supriza that ends up factoring in. And still, 8th, I mean, they're getting pretty good value out of a guy ranking 8th and and producing as much as Randall is.
1: Yeah, I think you'd have a hard time saying that anybody other than Randall, maybe Hani, although I think people are disappointed in him. But Randall, I think, would be most people's choice for team MVP so far this season. I mean, he like you mentioned, eighth on the team in salary. That's that's pretty good value for that. I um, you mentioned only making four hundred seventy-seven thousand dollars. That's well below. It's almost one hundred fifty thousand dollars below what you would expect for the minimum that a DP has to make to to be a designated player. And that's because, as you mentioned, the acquisition costs factor into the budget hit, even though they aren't reflected in the player's compensation. That's you know the reason that the MLSPA releases the numbers the way they do is partially because some of it is not really their business, the, the acquisition costs are a club to club transaction. But some of it is because they, they wanna um, present the picture that these guys aren't becoming billionaires based on the amount of money that they're making. So they, they're going to give you the version that kind of tells you this is this is the fair money that the guy is making. What they aren't telling you is that um, each club gets one player per squad who their acquisition costs can be amortized over the course of the contract up to a half a million dollars per year. And Randall leal by, by definition, has to be that guy because mm-hmm. he is not making $612,000 by rule. He has to hit Nashville's budget at at least that amount. We saw when he signed that his uh, acquisition costs were between 3.2 and $3.4 million, I believe. So that's being amortized over the course of his contract. Because he signed before MLS got a little bit more open about this, we don't know if it's a three or four year contract necessarily. Um, I would assume it's, it's probably a four year contract or maybe three with a club option. So it's being amortized over the course of that
0: contract. Um, some of it so that is what is pushing him over that dp threshold nashville is never going to be most likely top three four five in major league soccer in in spending and Mm -hmm. mike jacobs approach has always been to capitalize on inefficiencies in the market to count cards if you will by minimizing you know the uncertain variables and and bringing players in that that have a a higher than likely than not chance of, of panning out in some way you think it's some of the best teams in the league at maximizing their resources. I think your mind goes to maybe Mike Jacobs' former stop at Sporting Kansas City as one who's mm-hmm. notorious for that. At their best, New York Red Bulls have been have been good at that, although that's that's declined here in recent years. Among those those stalwarts, where do you think Nashville fits in terms of getting the most out of its spin? Is it top third of the league? Is it middle third? I, I think we'd both agree it's not bottom third. But with a year-plus of sample size, do we have enough to, to – put Nashville in a in a category of you know maximizing uh, their resources.
1: Well certainly what we do know is where they fit into the scheme of how much they're paying, which is second bottom half but not bottom third quite yet. And I think when you look at last year's table, when you look at how this year's table seems to be shaping up, It's obviously not where they're going to finish either year. So they're certainly overachieving. That would have to put them in the top half. And then going forward, I think it really does depend based on this year's data. Obviously, they're kind of languishing around the playoff line right now. That's on such a low sample size that we really don't know how significant it is. But if Nashville manages to finish top half of the of the playoff field in the eastern conference i think you'd have to say they're they're absolutely one of the top few teams in terms of maximizing what you get value per dollar you know that that money ball that yep. money ball valuing the undervalued that mike loves to talk about i think they would have to be right near the top there
0: all right so let's play good deal bad deal we've been through some of the specifics of some of these players and, and what they're making worst deal on the team macom nazarit somebody else
1: I think it's got to be Nazareth because we believe that most of a Com salary is being taken on by Hammerby. Nazareth as I mentioned previously, most of it is probably still being eaten by Nashville again because of the nature of of who is releasing the salary data. We don't necessarily know and will not know how much of that Nashville is eating, but it's it's got to be most of it. And that's for a guy who never saw the field for this club.
0: And if you're not missing on guys occasionally, you're probably not taking any chances. Uh, so I you know, think it's, it's, it comes with the cost of doing business that you're going to flop on on a few guys. I like think the key, too, is you know, can you replace those quote unquote busts with players at, at maybe lower than expected price points who are going to outperform? And Nashville's done that.
1: Right, absolutely. And I think it, it is important to note it, that you, you raise a really good point there is every single club, even the the best researched best, um, you know, those who have the access to the most data, those who have the most, uh, the smartest wonks in their in their back, in the back part of their front office, there are, are going to miss some. Um, Nashville is no exception. Nazarete, um I think a com there are reasons. There are reasons that you kind of shrug your shoulders and say whatever. But, um, you know, when you look at the value that Nashville has gotten out of guys that that they haven't paid a ton for, um, there there are, there are just so many of them. Uh, obviously, Alistair Johnson is a kid, kid who's a draft pick, thus on a rookie contract, and is going to be a, basically a two year starter by the end of this year. That's ridiculous. That, that's, you don't get that uh, level of contribution out of a draft pick very often. And that that speaks to the the club's uh, ability to to really Uh, maximize you know what they do scouting a a mechanism that a lot of mls teams have chosen to ignore in recent years and i don't think it's unwise necessarily for a lot of teams to not throw resources at the draft where nashville's franchise is it makes a ton of sense to use
0: that to the the best that you possibly can and it's worked out for them is alistair the best deal on this team or is it somebody else
1: i think he is one of a couple i'm not going to steal your thunder here because i believe you're gonna i believe you're gonna say one that that is Everybody knows that I'm a huge fan of this guy, so I'm, I, <laughs> I, I'm not hiding anything by saying that. I think Dave Romney is, is right up there, too.
0: So we're embracing consensus without even yes. having a segment called Embrace Consensus <laughs> this time. That's it for me. Uh, and, and, you know, again, this is not a perfect metric, but I, I love dollars per minute, dollars per 90. Mm-hmm. Because, again, if you are contributing, you're going to naturally get those minutes, and Dave Romney mm-hmm. has played every minute in the history of this franchise at the MLS level. And and at this rate, if you take his annual salary, and this is a rough estimate, right? But but multiply it by two, even though he's not played the full second year yet, and then break it down to uh, dollars per 90 minutes. Romney is making only $13,000 per ninety. Compare that to Walker Zimmerman, who you and I would both agree has also brought back huge value and you have to have bigger price points for some guys too. He's at sixty thousand. So Walker more than four times more than Romney per minute played. I'm going
1: to interrupt you because we talked about we talked about how I think Walker Zimmerman could have been an upgrade over Tim Ream at the uh, CONCACAF Nations League semifinal and final over the weekend. Tim Ream came in because he is a left-footed center back who has experience playing fullback. I'm going to need somebody to convince me, Dave Romney, who has those exact experiences. Yes, he's only done it in MLS, but he's also five years younger. I think he could have done an equal job
0: to Tim Ream, if not better. So, I am such a Dave Romney guy. <laughs> all right, so let's get into this, because I am too. Why is he so perpetually underrated? Is it because he's not flashy? He doesn't score as many goals as somebody coming up on, on corner kicks like Walker? What's the deal? It's, some of it is is the scoring thing. Some of it is he came up through the LA
1: Galaxy system when the LA Galaxy was run very poorly, and they, they didn't give him time um, to develop. They didn't give him time just on the field. In his final year at LA, You know, he kind of got roasted by by some of the national media for saying, "Oh, you know, my numbers were so much better than the players who played over me." And when I try to when I tried to break it down and and maybe figure out what Dave was talking about, he only played road games in his final year with the Galaxy until the last like two or three home games, and his numbers were still better per ninety, despite the fact that MLS has the biggest home road split in performance of any league in the world. So. That that's a big part of of why his numbers didn't look as impressive when you just kind of looked at, okay, you know, game one versus game two. When you look at Romney only plays on the road, it's so much more impressive what he did. Um he didn't really get a chance, and and there's a reason that everybody who worked for the LA Galaxy at the time no longer <laughs> works in soccer.
0: <laughs> Romney was such a catch mm-hmm. that I think people are gonna start calling him Mitt.
1: Mm-hmm. His distant, his distant cousin, by the way. <laughs> yes, cousin. they are
0: related. That's good. That helps uh, salvage the absolutely terrible joke. <laughs> uh, Alistair Johnston, by the way, if we're, if we're just playing around with that metric, just for fun. Dollars per 90, only $5,700 per 90 as he is making well under 100 k per year.
1: Uh, yeah, and you're not going to get MLS MVPs in year one, two, three out of the MLS draft. You are going to get guys who don't make a ton of money. And in the case of a guy like Alistair Johnson, the number 11 overall pick, this is not like the number two pick, the number 11 overall pick, but still a guy who became an every game starter over the course of last year is going to be essentially an every game starter this year and is on a, a uh, supplemental contract. So that's unbelievable for the value that you get out of them.
0: I think I'm going to give myself some homework and look up the stat of, of clean sheets per dollar spent on a a starting back (laughs) line. And I, I have a feeling without even researching it, that Nashville SC is going to be number one in that category based on the investments that they have made very shrewdly before we leave this topic and get into the mailbag and maybe how some of these guys are going to be used on the pitch for the rest of the season. Is there anything else that maybe a novice should understand about MLS roster rules, about the way Nashville SC has gone about building under those parameters why they didn't choose to have five DPs and keep two of them off the books like <laughs> Miami did. Anything else that folks should know.
1: Yeah, I think the main thing that that probably a lot of people who even understand the DP rule, they understand how TAM and GAM are used, is that only your top twenty players in compensation count against the salary budget. Now the guys who are number 21 through 30 have to fit into certain categories, whether that's how much they get paid, whether that's how old they are. Um, for the final two spots, 29 and 30, they have to be homegrown players. Nashville has had to trade because they obviously have not developed any of mm-hmm. their own yet. But those top 20 guys are the ones who count against the salary budget aside from the allocation money that you buy against the cap hit for them. And so when if you have guys in slots 21 through 30 who can contribute, you're getting a ton of value. We just talked about Alistair Johnson and he's a guy who absolutely fits that. He's a guy who does not make the senior minimum just yet. He will next year for sure. I am sure when his when his rookie contract ends, he's in for a hefty payday, but when you have guys who contribute who do meet the parameters to fit into those 21 through 30 spots, you are getting a ton of value and I think when we again when we talked to Mike Jacobs in the beginning of of this podcast journey That's the sort of thing that is valuing the undervalued, and he's getting production from guys who fit into spots that you do not and cannot pay a ton of money, and that really helps Nashville make sure they get the most value out of the ones that they do have to count against the salary cap and and spots one through 20 as well.
0: The dynamics of MLS rosters lend themselves well to lively discussion, but perhaps even better given their complexity. To long form written pieces and Tim's website is loaded with them clubcountryusa.com if you want deeper breakdowns about value for money about roster rules about why Nashville SC and other teams have made certain decisions uh, over the years just a wealth of content at clubcountryusa.com And as we head to the mailbag, I think, Tim, we have one of the most intelligent podcast audiences, certainly in this city and in the game of soccer. And the questions that we got during the national break prove that incredibly substantive and get into some tactics. John Hobenreich asks, setting aside whether Gary would actually do it, what do you think about Honey at Stryker? He says he thinks that Hani is Nashville's best finisher, and there are setups that would obviate the need for him in midfield. Tim, is that, in your opinion, a workable option?
1: Yeah, I think it's a workable option. We've seen it at times and very limited times last year. But the way the 4-2-3-1 is set up as Gary Smith implements it, he has the flexibility to shoot as much as he feeds from from that uh, number 10 position, from that central attacking midfielder spot. I don't know that he's necessarily a killer instinct guy. I say after he scored two goals on (laughs) on like three shots a week ago, but I don't know that he's a killer instinct guy that it makes sense to play as a side-by-side striker or even a guy who's kind of running off of a layoff striker. He can score, but it's not he He doesn't have that kind of bloodthirsty eye for the goal. So you don't necessarily need to make him a striker because what you're doing more than giving him more opportunities to shoot is taking away some of his opportunities to be a distributor to the wings, to be uh, kind of a link-up play who can get it back to his defensive midfielders and, and help in the buildup. So um, you're taking a body out of midfield by moving up to striker, and I don't necessarily see a ton of advantages in putting Hani there. Now, when you have a guy like maybe Don Bagi or CJ Sapong, you're adding size, you're adding strength. Yeah. It's a different situation because those guys bring a, a, a physical package that Hani doesn't bring. It's, it's a little bit different because you aren't taking a body out of midfield like you are if you don't have Hani there, but you do have him up in the t- front line there.
0: Sure. And I think, you know, we can't evaluate any single roster decision without also talking about the context that surrounds it. You know, could could Honey have some success up top in a, in a four, two, three, one occasionally or especially maybe as the, the second striker in a four, four, two? Yeah, he, he, he could. But but I think if you are considering putting him up there for more than just an occasional spell, you're assuming that Nashville can't find a viable second striker in that 4-4-2 when they have a roster of five guys, some of whom have had health issues, but you'd think there are always going to be a couple of guys who, who are going to be maybe more traditional options up there. You also then are assuming that that Nashville finds an answer on the wing that allows Leal to move inside if you're talking about moving Hani up, not in a 2 man, but in, you know, in a lone striker situation. It, 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 I think that's less likely than maybe putting him there in a 442. But, you know, with Buana and Pinero still coming along, especially Pinero, um you know, I, I don't think that that at this point Leal has the liberty to go inside and be the the number 10 in a 4231 formation. And you're assuming, quite honestly, that Hani's that finishing prowess would continue. You mentioned the the bit of a lack of a killer instinct for Mukhtar, and certainly he's shown flashes. Uh, but right now his goals minus XG leads Nashville SC. It's at plus 1.1. So he scored more than one additional goal on top of what the numbers would project him to score. Uh, that suggests the possibility then that that he's been lucky, and you know he found himself, or,
1: or that he succeeded because of the situation that he's in at times too. And doesn't necessarily portend to move to striker. It means maybe he's comfortable, especially as we saw against Atlanta, coming in off that left wing as he mm-hmm. was able to kind of clean up there. Sorry to interrupt you. Wes. No, I uh, think it gives him a chance to. Point, yeah.
0: No, I think it gives him a chance to find himself in the half spaces certainly, mm-hmm. and, and when you have a, an unaccounted for body that does have the technical skill that it's. Deniable from somebody like Muvtar, then I think you know you see him maybe better off in those cleanup situations than in a certainly a target striker situation or in a, a chief creator up top as opposed to somebody teaming up. I will say this too, Nashville does typically defend in a 4 4 2 look and he is in that top block so you still see Mukhtar have a chance to press and create opportunities in transition in the attacking third without formally being a striker when they're in that four two three one he moves up so often and and joins the other striker or the the only striker in that case to, to help set those traps so um, i don't think we have to formalize a move to striker nor will we probably see that in a long-term basis for him to still have opportunities to lead the line at times particularly in that press Ben Dudley with another formational question here. He asks if we think the roster is set up to play a 3-4-3. And he says, I know it's a a moot point because Gary would never do it, but indulge me, please. So the first two questions condition on the the qualifier that Gary would never actually do it. But in this case, actually, Nashville has done this before. In very limited situation, they ran a 3-4-3 to start the Houston match last year away. It was a 3-1 win without Zimmerman. Leal was on the bench. Delotti was the lone striker and it featured a cast of characters that typically Tim are, are not going to get a chance to start together because the personnel doesn't seem to lend itself to this being employed on a consistent basis.
1: Yeah. And I think the three, four, three is not something that we would see a ton of, of Gary running unless forced into it, but a lot of people forget. And maybe some people weren't Nashville SC fans yet, but at the beginning of, of the first USL season, a three, five, two was, was the base formation for this club. Now, it was not offensive enough. Despite having two strikers up there, it was not offensive enough for Gary to be satisfied with it. And you see that he wants to have bodies in the midfield. And that's, you would think, why you go with something like a three-five-two with or a 3-4-3 because you can have numbers in the midfield and those wingbacks kind of count as a fullback or as a winger mm-hmm. in some situations. But when you kind of look at what Nashville has this year, you don't really have the center back depth for it right now. Obviously, Jack Mayer is out on loan uh, with San Diego Loyal, and that's something that probably indicates that Nashville doesn't really feel the need to keep a ton of center backs around if they aren't guys who are going to get regular minutes. Mayer is a guy who they want to see on the field so that he can play um, now to develop for the future. They don't see the playing time for him now because there's not going to be the opportunity to play in odd back lines except uh, in situations at the end of games or whatever, things like that. And then the, the fullbacks that Nashville has right now are not necessarily made to play that wingback role nor are the wide midfielders i think taylor washington is an exception he came in essentially to play one of those wingbacks in the 352 and during gary's first usl season um, Alster johnston could probably play as a wingback on the right but really you're kind of shoehorning a guy into something that's not quite yet a natural role for him i don't think dan lovitz really has the skill set that makes sense as a wingback and as a fullback, he's one of Nashville's better players as well. So you're kind of, uh, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole formationally there with some of the players that Nashville has on this roster. So I don't think that it necessarily does fit with a three-four-three philosophy.
0: And the, the one time Nashville did start with a 3-4-3 in MLS play, I mentioned it at Houston. Here was the starting lineup, and you can see how limited they were elsewhere. It was Joe Willis in goal, Romney, of course, who's played every minute, Baba and Jack Mayer joining him on the three-man back line as Walker Zerman had left with injury the prior match at Kansas City. The Wings were Taylor Washington, as you mentioned, and Eric Miller got the start, Lagrassa and Anunga in midfield, Mukhtar, Mwil, Donlotti, the trio up top with Donlotti starting at striker. So a very different scenario. We will we will never see those eleven guys start a match together at Nashville. SC again. I'm going to guess they're all still technically on the roster except for Mayor on loan. But but it was certainly a very limited circumstance. So speaking of Lagrassa, we mentioned just a moment ago. Chris Howell asks, have fans been overlooking Matt Lagrassa in the way match against Atlanta? He looked more exciting than just a serviceable backup for Dax and Godoy.
1: Yeah, he's a guy who I think when you take it back to USL fans, they feel of two minds about him. First is that they're very proud that a guy from the USL days is such a big contributor, but at the same time, they feel a guy who is from the USL days might not feel like an MLS sort of guy because they've known him from the USL days. So so maybe there's a chance that kind of he's walking that line in a way that it does lead to his being overlooked. I think the main thing that stood out about him during his time in usl was his versatility he played striker he played uh, the holding midfield position that he's played so far here he he played wing which he's played a little bit in mls so far Uh, he played as a number 10 somewhat regularly Mm -hmm. at least in the first year for usl too so he's a guy who yeah there's certainly some excitement to his game and um you know he got sick of of when i was the only person at the press conferences every time and back in 2018 being like uh so matt you're pretty versatile huh (laughs) and being like "Yup, all right see you next week buddy (laughs) but but yeah i mean there's there's a lot to his game that that yes leads to him being a very effective player to have on the pitch but maybe does mean you know jack of all trades master of none is a possibility when when fans look at him obviously you and i are very high on him we're very Happy with the way that he's performed and maybe pleasantly surprised at times with the way he's performed.
0: Yeah, I mean, Gary Smith, his, his most viable currency is trust. And, and Matt LaGrosa has long since earned that faith, started more than 50 consecutive matches at the USL level. And one time we, we asked Gary in a chat, who would your comp be for him? Not necessarily talent level, but style of play. He gave us the comp of Jordan Henderson, the uh, Liverpool central midfielder, a stable box-to-box option, who has the vision to send in through balls and progressive passes. I'll mention this was a USL conversation, and um, in, in not in, in the last year and a half, but I think what what I'm seeing from LaGrasse is a bit more assertiveness to get involved in the attack, and certainly he was asked to do that coming in in the Um, the late moments against Atlanta with Nashville still chasing the game. He came in when it was 2-0 Atlanta. He had his first MLS assist. And a couple other stats to go with that. He had his highest progressive passing distance um, that wasn't just a function of minutes played, actually per minute. His progressive passing distance was better than it's been. So these passes are are getting forward. They're they're getting longer, a little more assertive. He took his fourth career MLS shot, but the first in a match that he didn't start for this club, as he took three last year in matches he started. Now, of course, Nashville was chasing the game. As we will mention almost every time, game state is a factor in stats. Uh, but at the same time, he's a guy that... that Gary Smith trusts to come in in those moments and to do more than just be stable, but in this case, to try to push forward and create.
1: One thing that's worth noting, I headed to NashvilleSoccerArchive.com while you were talking. Check it out, folks. It has oh, all time all-time statistics. Matt Lagrassa is the all-time leader for this club, USL and MLS combined in starts uh, with 65. I hope that is (laughs) updated. I think that might just be through last year, but um, he's number two in matches played behind only Taylor Washington. Obviously, those are the uh, two primary guys that you think of when you think of folks who are both years of USL and so far both years of MLS. But a guy that has the amount of minutes logged on the pitch that Lagrassa has, it's again, it kind of goes back to that same USL thing that I mentioned. It might be hard to get excited about him because he just feels so familiar. But at the same time, there's a reason that he's getting the amount of time that he is.
0: From a veteran seeking to push himself up the roster uh, while being relatively new to MLS itself. Let's go to another player, young in Major League Soccer and going to USL, at least for a bit. Jack Mayer gets loaned out to San Diego. That news broke uh, just uh, right before the Atlanta Match. Uh, are you surprised, asked Chris, that that he was loaned out to San Diego and is starting regularly in USL, better for his development than riding the bench behind Romney and Zerman? And finally, a, another tremendous question from Chris here: Should we be concerned that Jaleel Anibaba still seems to be higher in the depth chart? So I'll start with the last one because it's it's the easiest answer.
1: Jaleel Anibaba is like the platonic ideal of a of a locker room guy, a, a rah rah guy who fits the, this club's DNA absolutely perfectly. Whether or not he sees the pitch or not, he is a perfect guy for what this club wants to do and what this club wants to represent. So that is absolutely no worry. Is playing regularly for San Diego Loyal better than um, kind of understudying behind Dave Romney and Walker Zimmerman? I think the answer there has to be yes. Mm-hmm. He got that understudy time last year, and the club said, we need this guy to get minutes to prepare to play. Um, you and I have, have been high on Mayor, but have kind of said he's a guy for the future. He won't be a guy for the present until he has a chance to, to get his professional minutes under him. And he needs to do that. And I think San Diego loyal is the place for that to happen. Now, taking it to the very first question that Chris Holt asked in this, in this uh, three-parter is, are you surprised? I kind of am because I thought, despite the fact that he's kind of stuck behind Romney and Zimmerman, that the club would try to find minutes for him in MLS but I think the ultimate decision was we need him to play a lot, not just get a minute here and there. Even if he's understudying under two really good players, the time on the pitch is of the utmost importance. And for that reason, it makes sense, even though I didn't necessarily see it coming until it, it was uh, about to break there.
0: Two more roster related questions. Number one from Logan Elliott. If we do go out and make a DP signing this summer, where do we believe the upgraded position should be, and how likely would a summer signing be?
1: Yeah, Mike Jacobs, when we've talked to him both for for the episode of of the podcast that I've referenced a couple times already in this this episode, but in basically every uh, appearance that he's made in in front of the media has said that attacking positions are where you see designated players. You can find holding midfielders domestically. You can find defenders domestically. You can find uh, goalkeepers domestically. But goal scoring is something that... uh, Players who are developed in America or who come from MLS, either, you know, it takes them a little bit longer or the price tag internally within the league is not worth it. You might as well go out of the the league to find a guy. And so, therefore, uh, you have a designated player at left wing in in Randall Layal. You have a designated player at the number 10 spot in Hani Mukhtar. The question necessitates John is loan not being made permanent. And thus, it's got to be either striker or right wing. The club has considered both of those in the past. I and mean, they looked at a guy, Isak Brisuela from Chivas uh, early last summer, who is a left footed right winger. I think that would actually be a really good fit a guy who can kind of do some of the same things that Leal does on the other side, or if they, don't play those wingers with their strong foot to the inside so they can cross a little bit. You, you have a guy who can compliment him because they're um, opposite foots of the, of the same sort of player. And if you have guys like that who can create, you can get by with a, a number nine, a, a striker, who kind of is there to dunk home what those guys create. I think a right wing would make the most sense. But obviously, I wouldn't begrudge you know a Zlatan-esque striker either. That's something that obviously would make a huge difference for this club as well
0: but likely a moot point because we both expect John Cadiz to likely be purchased at least uh, with an option, maybe for the remainder of the year. And therefore that eliminates the chance to, uh, to bring in another DP. John Mueller closes this out. Seriously though, he says, how incredible can NSC's 2020 draft class B Johnston starts, Hawkinson is a sub now, and Mayer is getting some solid pro seasoning in USL. Once you get past the first five or ten picks, it really kind of is a crapshoot. Nashville is seeing significant value out of picks down the line.
1: Yeah, I'm always going to look wistfully at a photo of Daryl DK. that, of like, course. I think it's Wolverine from that that meme, that's, that X-Men meme or whatever. <laughs> Uh, a picture of Daryl DK saying, man, they could have had him. Cause I was really high on, on DK before the draft too. Oh. I understand the reasons that Nashville went with mayor. I, I, it's going to take Jack mayor becoming a really good player. And he has that potential. It's going to take him becoming a really good player for me to say, okay, they absolutely made the right decision there. Um, you're looking at $20 million if you, <laughs> if you drafted Daryl yeah. DK, so that might've been better either way. But um, you know, like I mentioned previously, Nashville is one of the few franchises that is really going to value the draft. They're going to put some resources into the draft right now. When they have a little bit more built out, when they have an academy that can produce professional talent, when they have a roster that's returning most of its players year over year, they won't necessarily put all those resources into the draft, but they did the right thing for the first year. And obviously it's paying off. It's going to be incredible. Obviously we've talked a ton about how Johnson already in this episode about how high we are on his value per dollar and things like that if Mayer turns good in the end that's perfect for Nashville because you do get those guys who already are contributing in Johnson and Hawkinson and you have a future contributor in Mayer too then that's something that three contributors in a single draft class is is rare in this era of MLS and um, credit to Mike Jacobs and his staff for for finding three guys that they believe can be stars in the future.
0: Thanks for some really substantive questions uh, this week and always. We may drive the bus, but you guys fuel it. Thanks again for helping us create some good content that answers some of what you want to know as we head... Outside in now, this is, of course, the international break edition. And we'll head first to South America, where John Cadiz and Venezuela were upset by a pretty terrible Bolivia team, for being honest. At altitude, some sloppy goals scored on that one. Yonder did get in, though. Came on in the 79th minute. Didn't factor into the result as Bolivia attacked on the final goal just four minutes after he came on.
1: Yeah, if, if they don't upset Uruguay... Tuesday tonight, when most of you are listening to this podcast, maybe we're coming at you from the past. If if you wait if you wait a couple days after downloading to actually listen, you already know how that turned out. But if they don't upset Uruguay later tonight, it's it's getting real dark, real fast for them in terms of their chances to make the World Cup. Um, They're going to be in one of the bottom two spots, probably second from bottom, but maybe even at the very bottom of the table, a third of the way through the uh Canma Ball qualifying schedule um they haven't played Argentina or Ecuador who are number 2 and number 3 in the table right now uh you know when you get through those two teams if you lose to both of them as expected you aren't going to outside of an incredible run through through the through the second legs of all these of all these cuz it is a home and home uh format for Canma Ball. unless you do something incredible that your first half of your schedule has shown that you probably won't do. Uh, they aren't making the world cup, uh, unfortunately. So um, Copa starts uh, Sunday against Brazil. I would guess that he's not a part of it, but the the world cup qualifying dream is already starting to fade pretty fast.
0: Let's head to CONCACAF. Now Ani Bogadoy, Alistair Johnston, Randall, all involved in matches. We've already mentioned they just a little bit and in his involvement for Costa Rica in the uh, semis, uh, a tough loss in penalties to Mexico, so technically a draw that Mexico advances on penalties. And then he also played against Honduras, and now perhaps starts against the United States. Another one of these where, depending on when when you're listening to this, you may already know how this transpired. Uh, I think, you know, it's a U.S. team with a lot of momentum, but maybe going to be taking its foot off the intensity gas just a little bit, heading into a friendly against Costa Rica, where it'd be fun to see if Leal can, can get another run out against the U.S.
1: Yeah, and I think he's a player who doesn't necessarily get the credit that he deserves in the United States. People don't realize, um, with Keeler Navas, the, the incredible goalkeeper unavailable for Costa Rica Leal is probably the first name on the team sheet for this edition of, of the team. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, again, since it's a friendly after a pretty intense tournament for Costa Rica, I'm um, going to penalties twice, uh, not prevailing in either of those games, unfortunately, but maybe they want to rest him, but maybe they want to say, Hey, Get your confidence back a little bit. Have a little faith, not only in yourself, but maybe in this Costa Rica team. As we prepare for the Gold Cup a little bit later this summer, he's almost certainly going to be there. So they might want to say, hey, Randall, let's get some confidence back in what, in what Costa Rica is doing and how you can contribute to that. And playing against the United States, obviously, is going to be a pretty big stage for a guy who um, is, is the MVP for an MLS team so far this season.
0: And you can catch U.S. and Costa Rica Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Central on ESPN2 or Univision or Unimas. Two guys involved in World Cup qualifying at this early stage in CONCACAF. Anibal Godoy did not feature in the 13-0 win for Panama over Anguilla perhaps for the best as they have a, a pretty important match closing out qualifying. But are the odds on favorites now to advance because of results elsewhere in that group?
1: Yeah, the Dominican Republic drew Barbados, which means that Panama only needs a draw to to advance out of phase one of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. If they do beat or draw the Dominican Republic Tuesday evening, so by the time that you're listening to this, hustle to your television set and turn on <laughs> Paramount Plus, I guess. But um, they will face the winner of, of Curacao and Guatemala. In a two-legged tie, Saturday and Tuesday, so a week from tonight and a couple days before a week from tonight, you know, because because yeah, I give things in reverse chronological order here, I guess, but um, he should feature in the competitive matches. He has 100 caps for his country, and although he's not a spring chicken at this point, he is so crucial when they are playing a team that can prevent them from putting up 13 goals.
0: So Panama likely one match away from. Qualifying for the hex, if things happen as they should this week, and you may oct- already know it's that it's the octa. I'm just used to calling it the hex. Know, it's kind of like the I, Big it, Ten. That has it. Bums been, me out. It
1: bums me out. Yeah. The
0: Big Ten's not really about how many teams anymore. It's just the brand. I just, I just, I'm, I'm used to calling it the hex. The hex. I guess I better get uh, get rid of that habit. Uh, Nashville's right back, by the way, may or may not factor in, but his Canada team in a huge match this week for a chance to get a step closer to the octa, octo. <laughs> Octo team, Octopus, whatever you want to call it for Canada.
1: <laughs> Alistair Johnston did not play against Aruba. They also had a very comfortable win. I believe the matches were the the number one seed in each group versus the number five seed in each group, which was the first versus last um, in terms of FIFA ranking. So it was supposed to be a blowout. And fortunately for these two teams, it was. Um, it didn't turn out that way for everybody. Trinidad will not be making the next round of the World Cup Wild. to the relief of American fans yes. probably after the 2018 <laughs> qualifying but because uh, they beat Aruba 7-0, the Canucks only need a draw against Suriname to advance to play the winner of the Haiti-Nicaragua match. Again, that's going to be a two-legged match against one of those two teams to advance to the third round, which is the round in which the United States enters the competition. Those games won't take place until September after the Gold Cup, but Canada will have to beat either Haiti or Nicaragua next week in order
0: to advance to The Oct. The Oct. Let's move to the final whistle now. What content have you been consuming of late during the international break?
1: Yeah, I mentioned it a little while ago when we were talking about Matt LaGrasa, but NashvilleSoccerArchive.com. I used it to confirm some stats for last episode, and then I slid in a little stat while we were talking tonight. But um, I have no attention span, and I switched last minute last week, so I don't want to forget again to shout out NashvilleSoccerArchive.com. Uh, run by my good fl- friend clay Trainum. i think most people recognize him as the guy who goes to a ton of nashville sc matches i think he and i have been to more than anybody else by a, a pretty wide margin mm-hmm. each of us um and also pharma soccer which is clay's podcast uh they air on uh one of the local radio stations here on 1025 the game i believe uh you have an affiliation with that as well west but <laughs> um they had me as their guest this week so uh if you have Already finished this episode, which you should be because we're in the last couple of minutes of it here. Go check out Pharmaceutical Soccer as well.
0: Yeah, NashvilleSoccerArchive.com has become such a valuable resource for me as I research for matches because they aggregate those stats, USL, Mm -hmm. MLS, going way back to the Nashville Diamonds. And You will not meet somebody who's more passionate about Nashville soccer or sports minutia of many kinds than Clay. Tremendous human being. And, and such an encyclopedia of, of Nashville soccer knowledge. Check it out for sure. I can't beat that recommendation, honestly. But I will say I, I just got a free trial of Prime Video so that I could watch When Eagles Dare. It is a documentary covering the uh, the unlikely rise of Crystal Palace. I think if you were naming the 20 Premier League clubs, many of you would get to 19 and realize the one you forgot was crystal palace. I've been guilty of that sometimes when I'm trying to count my sheep in my sleep, I count premier league teams. And that's maybe the London team that gets uh, lost in the shuffle, even behind your, uh, your beloved West Ham. Massive,
1: massive West Ham. You mean uh,
0: sure? (laughs) Well, massively something i can't say much this year uh, being an arsenal supporter myself Uh, but palace in a unique corner of london with a unique history that at one point even included a massive protest in front of lloyds of london to try to save the club from liquidation and they bounce back they rise to the top tier where they've consolidated their position nicely and been there for several years now i don't think many people despise crystal palace you know like i didn't want to watch the the tottenham documentary as an arsenal guy because i didn't want to start mm-hmm. seeing Jose Mourinho as human or as any, yeah. in any way sympathetic. I have no such qualms about you know, even Wilfred Zaha and uh, crystal palace i i just started it to be honest with you i'm 20 minutes in the baby started wailing so i had to go pick him up and i hadn't revisited it so i'm, I'm giving you a mostly sight unseen recommendation but in those first 20 minutes i can tell you production value is extremely high and uh, the insight so far that's been given is very thorough they talk to all the key players involved and uh, i think uh, certainly worth worth your time and and i'll confirm that next week when we talk again uh, anything else you want to leave us with
1: no, I was very excited to write about the U.S. men's national team, which uh, I think longtime readers would certainly know. I wrote about the USMNT at clubcountryusa.com long before Nashville SC ever kicked a ball as a, at the professional level. So I was excited to have the chance to write about it again because Nashville was on a break while the men's national team was playing. So for once, I did not have too full a palette to actually be able to, to look at it in a little bit of depth. So check out clubcountryusa.com for some of that. And as you mentioned earlier, I will definitely be diving into the roster stuff in in much more depth than I could have uh, while we were on the game-to-game, week-to-week grind thing.
0: That is clubcountryusa.com. Be sure to visit, and also be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, and follow us on Twitter. We want you to amplify the message of this podcast. Tell a friend, tell five friends. The people that you've been trying to say, hey, you should come to a Nashville soccer match. If they came to that Austin match, they came and they tailgated with you, tell them about the podcast as that next way to get a little deeper into uh, understanding Nashville Soccer Club. We hope this has been an informative and enjoyable episode for you. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. He's Tim. I'm Wes. We will see you next week.